2: 28. March, 1938. I enclose the draft of a letter which Dr. Robert Eisler asked me to address to you on his behalf. Dr. Eisler is an Austrian Jew. What has happened to him since the Anschluss I don't know. I hope he is safe, for he is a pleasant little man full of knowledge. Whether the knowledge is always sound I am not in a position to say. I know that R.G. Hotry has no very high opinion of his mathematical economics, but Dr. Eisler is a good lecturer and can make his subject interesting. So I am glad to commend him to you for anything that you can do for him, for if he has succeeded in escaping from Austria, he will assuredly be in need of it. Yours sincerely, F. Ashton Gwatkin.
3: 1938 was a dark year in Vienna. Just how dark a year it was became apparent when I spent a week going through Eisler's boxes at the Varberg Institute in May of 2016. For me, it was a powerful way to break through the numbness that is sometimes unavoidable when thinking about the Holocaust. Reading through the letters of people who were trying to make sense of what the Nazis were doing in real time was a chilling experience. They're complaining about mail censorship, talking about getting visas and hiring a Nazi lawyer to work on Eisler's behalf all without any idea of what was coming, or even what was really going on, in Dachau. Eisler made it out alive, but his younger brother Otto was murdered, along with 65,000 other Jews, in the notorious in trustinitz death camp in 1942. I'm Brian Collins, and this is A Very Square Pig, a podcast about Robert Eisler. This is episode number eight, A Very Difficult Man to Kill. Talking with Stephen Beller about the fifteen months Eisler spent in Dachau and Buchenwald in a little bit, but first we should fill in some blank spots in the timeline. I need to point out that I've been leaving out a lot of Eisler's activities so that we don't completely lose the thread of his story. For instance, since the nineteen teens, Eisler has been writing to museums trying to convince them that they have attributed their artworks to the wrong artist or time period. Sometimes they wrote him back telling him that he was crazy, and other times they accepted his findings. So along with everything else he was doing, throughout his life he continued to do what we might call the traditional work of the art historian. But he was also intensely involved in philology. When I was describing his argument with Solomon Zeitlin earlier, I said that he died before the Dead Sea Scrolls were published. But that's not exactly true. In 1896, Solomon Schechter discovered a document in a Cairo synagogue and published an English translation of it in 1910. It wasn't until some fragments of the same document were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls 40 years later that people actually knew where it belonged. Eisler did actually write about this text that Schechter discovered. He identified it as a Sadekite book of the New Covenant and published an essay about it in a 1936 festschrift for the great scholar of Judaism, Moses Gaster. A couple of little side notes. This festschrift was co-edited by Arthur Marmastein, the same scholar who attacked Eisler's arguments about the Last Supper back in 1926. And Moses Gaster's son Theodore later recorded some anecdotes about Eisler in the introduction to his father's collected works in 1971. In this period, Eisler wrote an article on Freethinkers for the Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences in 1934, in which he gives away his total lack of religious beliefs and he also finally published his article about the psychoanalytic interpretation of Robert Whitehead's vision of Christ. Imago, where he planned to publish the article, had rejected it, but it appeared in 1938 in the German Journal of the Psychology of Religion. Whitehead himself had died in 1936. 1938 was also the year that Methuen published The Enigma of the Fourth Gospel. But more importantly, it was the year of the Anschluss, Hitler's annexation of Austria, which happened on March 12. Now let's back up a bit and talk about the Anschluss with Stephen Beller. We spoke to Dr. Beller back in Episode 2. And he is the author of A Concise History of Austria, Anti-Semitism, A Very Short Introduction, and Vienna and the Jews, 1867-1938, A Cultural History. Stephen explained to me that after the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg Monarchy, following World War I, what is now Austria was going to become part of the same state as Germany, since there were such strong linguistic and cultural continuities.
1: The Habsburg monarchy was broken up in, uh, in, the, in the October, November uh, 1918. In fact, one of the first parts to, as it were, declare in- independence from the, from the monarchy, right, was ironically the, the, the Republic of German Austria. But the initial idea, whereas the South Slav parts were going off to to Yugoslavia. Uh, The Romanian parts of Hungary were going off, were eventually going to go off to Romania. Uh, Hungary was going to be independent, okay. The the Polish part of the Habsburg monarchy was going to become part of Poland. Most of the political leadership in in German Austria in 1918 and 1919, thought that the German part of Austria was going to join Germany. The German-Austrian political leadership wanted Anschluss with Germany in 1918, 1919. That's why it was called German Austria, Deutsch Österreich. Of course, the thing was that the Allies, the French and the, and the British and the, and the Americans, were not having it because they didn't want their, their main enemy to end up bigger after the war than they had been before. So they, they basically vetoed Austria's joining Germany. And so it became not German Austria, but the Republik Österreich, right? Austrian Republic became the official name.
3: The Austrian Republic was actually a much more conservative and authoritarian state than the Weimar Republic in Germany, which was a liberal democracy. As a result, liberal people in Austria saw union with Germany as a positive thing. Of course, all this changed when Hitler came to power and energized the Austrian Nazis, who had been a fringe movement and even outlawed as an illegal organization before.
1: There was a Nazi party in Austria, more or less from the end of the First World War. By the time of the Anschluss, there had already been a kind of a half anschluss because of the agreements that the Austrian Chancellor Schuschnigg had had to make with with Hitler. There's a a Becht and Bechtesgaden agreement, I think, in 1936 where essentially Schuschnigg had been forced because there was no one one coming to his defense by that point, because Italy, which had been Austria's sponsor, was now more in league with Germany than it had been before. So there were already essentially Nazis in the Austrian cabinet. They weren't officially Nazis, but they were effectively Nazis. In other words, people put in there by Hitler. So what essentially happened was in, Towards the, at the beginning of 1938, uh, Schuschnigg thought he, he would try to kind of respond to additional pressure from the Germans by kind of trying to appeal to Austrian, Austrians' sense of independence and the, and the Western Allies, essentially. And he set up this uh, referendum asking Austrians whether they would be independent or not. And that was to be held, I believe, on, on March the 12th but Hitler decided a day or so before to invade Austria anyway and not, not let this referendum happen. And at that point, and, and it's interesting, when the referendum was, uh, was announced and uh, uh, the, days, the days just before the referendum, it looked like a strong majority of Austrians would vote for independence. However, once the German army started invading and, and, the, and the Nazi party in Austria started taking over power. Much of the support for the independence referendum disappeared. I mean, I mean the, the German troops were greeted with white roses and so on, and, and, uh, and seek howl shouts in Salzburg, etc.
3: The natural question that arises, if you don't know the history, is why were so many Jews still in Austria if there was even a question of coming under the control of Hitler in 1938? For a little context, I recorded this interview with Stephen the day after President Trump fired tear gas and rubber bullets on peaceful protesters in order to stage a photo op at a church.
1: I mean, very few Jews had left Austria by March 1938, even though the writing was there on the wall that the Nazis were going to take over, because they didn't, they didn't think anything, you know, you know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> look, at, look at politics today here, right? I mean, you, you, who knows what will happen, but no one's moving. I mean, no, no one's really doing anything because they can't imagine that it, could, it could become as, as bad as it could get. If, you, if, if people had wanted to leave, they could have left Austria. Problem was they couldn't get permission to
3: stay in anywhere else. That winter, Isaac was trying to set up a lecture tour of England to get out of Austria. He reached out to Morgan Phillips Price, the Bolshevik-sympathizing British MP who was such a big fan of Eisler's The Messiah Jesus and John the Baptist, but Price was unable to help. Following the Anschluss, Eisler wrote to Oxford about being appointed to the Wild Readership in Comparative and Natural Religion, thereby gaining a way out. On the day after Hitler held a rally in Vienna attended by 200,000 Austrian supporters, a letter came expressing regret that Oxford was unable to offer any assistance. Desperate to find an escape, Eisler wrote to friends all over Europe and America asking for help. Finally, his old friend Gilbert Murray stepped in and secured him the Oxford Post, which he was to have taken in October and held for three years. But on May 20th, Eisler was arrested and sent to Dachau, where he became prisoner 16547.
1: There was a spate of essentially political uh, arrests immediately after the Anschluss. Another month went by, however, until there was this spate of arresting uh, and deporting to Dachau. Sometimes we think that the kind of the German, kind of the, the, the real violence of, of uh, the, the Third Reich against Jews only started in November 1938 with the Kristallnacht. But in the, in the Viennese case, in the Austrian case, the violence had, had already been there from the first day, in fact, the day before. the the German army arrived in Austria. I I think for people they were they were expecting to be arrested. Right, they they came in the middle of the night. Other this (laughs) other period when people got carted off to Dachau in uh, I think April and May, the authorities practiced a rather kind of uh, subtle thing. Oh well, you know, someone would go around to the apartment say, "Oh yeah, um, um, we we just we just wanted to ask you a few questions, right, In, in a nice manner." Please come down to the, the, the police station with me. But, you know, we're just asking you some f- questions. And then they'd end up in Dachau. Right? But there was no real warning that that's what was going to happen. So there wasn't one policy right from, from the beginning. In fact, the first month in Vienna was basically what they called Wild Arisierung, right? It was a wild Aryanization. There was no control over what happened to Jews. They're basically, local Nazis just took their property. Or, or beat them, you know, beat them up or made them wash the, wash the sidewalks and so on and so forth. But a lot of it was just taking property, basically looting. When the Germans came in, uh, you know, kind of re- reasserted control over the process in about a month or six weeks after the entrance, that was actually greeted by Jews as, as you know, as, as bringing order to the process, right? Almost. What was interesting was that Eichmann, when he came, he was given the job of getting the Jews out of Austria, right? but he also made a kind of devil's pact with the Jewish community. And the way Eichmann organized it, most of the administrative part of controlling Jews, taxing them, making them do all this stuff, right, even, even delivering them at one point to Dachau, right, was through the, through the Jewish community. So he got the Jewish community to basically do his bidding. Now, of course, from the Jewish community's point of view, from the literature of the Jewish community, they wanted Jews to emig- get out, escape, because they realized there was hopeless, right? So, so the emigration, the, the kind of the, the, the expel- expulsion of Jews, happened with Jewish agreement.
3: I asked Stephen how people like Eisler, Jews who had converted to Catholicism, fit into this dynamic.
1: Now, there weren't, that, there weren't as many as you think there were, right? The number of Catholics who were of, of Jewish descent, there wasn't a huge amount of them, but they were not regarded as Jews by the Jewish community, really. I think they were reluctant to help Catholic Jews, as it were, precisely
3: because uh, they had enough on their hands with helping the, the Jewish Jews, as it were. Dachau had already been in operation for five years, but most of its inmates were political prisoners along with gypsies, homosexuals, Jesuits, and a large number of Jehovah's Witnesses, who were known in German as Bibelforscher, or Bible Students, which Eisler, as we will see, remembers as Biblical Scientists. The 2,000 Jews arrested after the Anschluss, many in so-called protective custody, were the first large group of Jewish prisoners sent to the camp. In the weeks following Kristallnacht, the pogroms throughout Nazi Germany on November 9th and 10th, following the assassination of a German diplomat by a Polish Jew, the number of Jewish prisoners in the camp exceeded 13,000. Most of them were released after their property was confiscated and they agreed to leave the country. I asked Stephen to explain to me what this prisoner transfer was all about, and my eisler might have been sent to Buchenwald instead of released. They had to make more
1: room for the new, new people, and then secondly, the initial point of, of the Dachau thing in, in May when people get get arrested kind of kind of without knowing why, particularly, they, they just wanted to uh, have slave labor essentially and it didn't work very well. So uh, I guess at some point they could have made a kind of a cost-benefit analysis and say, well it's, you know, it's, just release them and we get we get lots of money out of them because their wives and friends uh, will purchase purchased them out, they're almost like the hostages, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole emigration thing was just blackmail, right? They're just, just a freezing operation. I, but I don't know, you know, some, as I said, some people got out and others didn't. And at that point, they, they hadn't quite gotten around, around to the idea of, of, of extermination camps, really. I mean, they, they could be quite brutal.
3: Eisler found out just how brutal they could be when he was transferred from Dachau to Buchenwald. Prisoners worked from first light until dark, and during the period when Eisler was there, after dinner, they were often made to continue working under floodlights until one in the morning. In the camps, Eisler made friends with like-minded prisoners like the rare book dealer Hans P. Krauss and Heinrich E. Jacob. Jacob would go on to write a landmark 1944 study of the history of baking and bread called 6,000 Years of Bread, Its Holy and Unholy History. In the postscript, he wrote, I wish to thank my friend Robert Eisler, historian of religion, who in the dark days of Doc Allen Buchenwald kept awake my hope to finish and to publish this book. Meanwhile, Eisler's friends and family were keeping awake their hope that he would be allowed to return home. After the break, we'll talk about some of the ways in which they tried to get him released.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
4: Passa de a ab paruach, be om meskar inikira. Be me de kaparim yom par yom poach, ashem meskete de zahar. Urohe uro, shuhuru ben ik varin kapahin bashlak baal, al tehak varin it's
3: Eisler's wife, friends, and Oxford University attempted to get him released, but everyone was pretty confused about what was going on. W.A. Wordsworth was especially persistent in trying to get Eisler freed. He wrote directly to Oxford.
2: I'm glad to know that Oxford has done what it could, but I hope this does not mean that you think it's useless to make any further attempt. There must always be a certain incalculable element, and I have an impression that this time may be favorable however little this appears on the face of it. It is perhaps possible that if the German authorities are hoping to drive a hard bargain in the financial negotiations, they would be disposed to pave the way by some concession that would cost them nothing, but will give a good impression in England. Doubtless you know that Eisler's visits to England were partly in connection with some financial theories. I think he persuaded one of the investment banks to experiment on his ideas. He had worked out some ideas with a French mathematician by which they were confident that they could forecast a year in advance the trend of the rise and fall of values of various types of investments. He believed that if the government would act upon those principles, it would go far to solve the unemployment problem. It is all beyond me, but I think he told me that the investment trust company, I forgot which it was, had got good results from the year's trial of it. Perhaps the financial method of approach may be a dangerous one to try on the German authorities, but if you can get at the facts, it might be worth considering, as the plea of scholarship has been unsuccessful so far. Eisler's colleagues also wrote
3: to the Society for the Protection of Science and Learning a British organization that formed in 1933 as the Academic Assistance Council to try to help scholars displaced or imprisoned by the Nazis. It still exists today as the Council for At-Risk Academics and has helped scholars from places like Iraq and Zimbabwe. The Society's General Secretary, David Clegghorn Thompson, actually knew Eisler and seems to have done everything he could to help him, but without result. In March of 1939, when Eisler had been imprisoned for 10 months, A man named A.M. Ruff wrote to the Society that he had found someone willing to pay Eisler's fares to England, give him and his wife a place to live, provide them with an allowance, and then get Eisler a job in Istanbul. But Ruff was understandably confused about how exactly to describe Eisler, and identified him as a professor of Slavonic languages. The Society's assistant secretary, Esther Simpson, who went on to get an OBE for all the work she did during the war, wrote back,
5: I am replying to your letter of March 13th in the absence of Mr. Cleghorn Thompson in Scotland. Your letter concerns Dr. Robert Eisler, whom you describe as Professor of Slavonic Languages at the University of Vienna. There is no professor of that name at the University of Vienna, but I think you must mean the economist and historian Robert Eisler, who is now in a concentration camp. I am afraid that the guarantee which Mr. Allen very kindly offers will not assist Dr. Eisler. There is a position available for him at the University of Oxford and a visa ready for him to come to this country. The sole difficulty lies in the attitude of the German authorities. The officials at the University of Oxford have taken every possible step to secure Dr. Eisler's release, but without success, even though they had the prestige of Oxford and the assistance of the Foreign Office.
3: Eventually, Eisler was released from Buchenwald in 1939, just before the invasion of Poland and the outbreak of the war. In a letter to Eisler, a friend wrote that one of their mutual acquaintances, quote, was under the impression that you had died in a concentration camp, but I told him that you were a difficult man to kill, end quote. After Eisler was freed, the New Testament scholar Wilbert Howard sent him a clipping of a review he had written for the Enigma of the Fourth Gospel along with some words to the effect that he was glad Isa was alive, and that under the circumstances the authorship of the Gospel of John was probably the last thing on his mind. Isa responded. Sincere thanks
6: for your congratulations and expression of your sympathy, for which I am sincerely grateful. In December of last I was no more in Dekal, but in the much worse camp of Buchenwald. I am glad to say that I have not been overwhelmed by any feelings of despair, but on the contrary, I am counting my mercies, thanking Providence and my many friends for the renewed opportunity of continuing my research work. If only my wife could get out of Austria where she is still living, fortunately our house is far away from any likely field of aerial warfare or any military action, and will join me here before long. I should indeed call myself extremely fortunate being here among such good friends in such lovely surrounding which I hope will never be converted into a wilderness. Thank you also very much for the cutting of your review. To me, these problems will never sink to a subordinate place. I have been speculating a good deal about them while working in the labor gang to the limit of my physical powers. And it may interest you that I have had some very fruitful and comforting discussions with one highly educated and intelligent member of the primitive Christian Adventist community of the so-called biblical scientists, the members of which are mostly in the German concentration camps, about 500 in Buchenwald, and more cruelly treated even than the Jews because they believe Hitler to be the foretold Antichrist. The kingdom of God, a political organization to be realized here on earth as a reign of justice and loving kindness. And because they refuse military service. I was greatly surprised to hear this man who had studied Hebrew and Greek, as well as theology in order to be a teacher and preacher among his brothers. They have no clergy should have read my German Yesus Basilius and derived from it what he felt to be the strongest possible confirmation of his and Judge Russerford's interpretation of the Gospels. I had no inkling of the very existence of the sect and was deeply touched to witness the exact counterpart to the Roman persecution of the catacomb Christians going on before my own eyes. It is difficult to exaggerate the silent courage and deep honesty of these simple souls. My learned friend was an isolated case among others. While we Jews would sabotage the work we were forced to do for our Nazi enemies whenever and wherever we could, these men not only never did anything of this sort but told us time and again that you must not deceive or damage even those who tortured you. While it was often a curse to have to work under a corrupt and often rowdyish Jewish foreman, Habitual criminals, bullies, and gangsters were often appointed as labor bosses, so-called capos. Everybody considered himself fortunate to work under a foreman of the biblical scientist's persuasion. These people being
3: selected for their posts because of their dependability and honesty. When I discovered this letter, I had just about given up searching for some account of Eisler's time in the camps. But then there it was, in English and with relatively neat handwriting, no less. Most of the letter is a lengthy response to Howard's critiques of his arguments about the Fourth Gospel, but there are a few passages in the description we just heard that I would like to talk about. First of all, we know that Eisler arrived in England alone after he got out of Buchenwald. From other correspondents, we know that he stayed first with a Dr. and Mrs. Gurney of Oxford, and then probably at Ripon Hall, a hostel for theological students that had been moved to the hamlet of Boershead near Oxford in 1933. Second, Eisler claims that the subject of the authorship of the Fourth Gospel never left his mind when he was locked up. This tracks with Heinrich Jacobs' recollection that Eisler encouraged him not to give up publishing his own book about the history of bread. I first thought this was a strange thing. I assumed, like Howard, that the prisoners of Dachau and Buchenwald would have lost interest in whatever they were doing before they were locked up in a nightmarish prison camp with no idea if they would ever get out, especially if what they were doing before seemed particularly esoteric. But when I mentioned this to Roberto Colasso, who is as close to a polymath as anyone I've ever met, he quickly rattled off a list of Jewish scholars who continued their scholarly work in their heads as they suffered in worse camps than Eisler's. Third, and relatedly, we know that Eisler was fascinated by the Jehovah's Witnesses. All the more so because the unnamed witness that he had met had read his two-volume German book on Jesus based on the Slavonic Josephus manuscripts. And by the way, the Judge Rutherford he mentions was the second president of the group that we now know as Jehovah's Witnesses, who is responsible for developing their doctrines and their practices. The thing he does not discuss in this letter is the experience he described in his 1949 essay, The Empiric Basis of Moral Obligation. The isolated
6: individual can never be certain whether he is right or wrong, and not even whether he is sane and reasonable or insane and mad. You may take this from me, who have been not indeed in a lunatic asylum, but in the solitary confinement of the Black Bunker in a concentration camp for a time that seemed endless. The completely isolated individual hangs on precariously and only perilously to reason and sanity.
3: The Black Bunker is the garrison at Dachau that was built, presumably by the prisoners themselves, at the time Eisler was there. After Eisler was gone... Four narrow-standing cells, like the ones used by the Inquisition, were added to the bunker. But the confinement Eisler is talking about would have taken place in the East and West Wings, where the prisoners were locked away under constant surveillance for weeks or months at a time with greatly reduced rations. One prisoner who was there when Eisler was describes being locked in the dark with nothing to mark the time except the warm food the prisoners were given only on every fourth day. After the war, Isa wrote about the Nazis and Hitler in a few different contexts. In May of 1945, responding to Hitler's obituary in the Times, Isa wrote a letter to the editor explaining the confusion over why Hitler's surname was changed from his family name of Schickelgruber.
6: Two short footnotes to your obituary of the Fuhrer. The often alleged change of name by Hitler's father amounts to this. Austrian peasants have regularly two names. One, derived from the name of the freehold, the house name transmitted from owner to owner in case of inheritance or sale of the property. The other, the family name a man signs on documents. A man is called by his house name as long as he dwells there and owns his place. He signs himself with his family name. The change from the one to the other is evidence of the sale or cession of property rights to a new owner. Hitler means small cottager or little catman, and is originally an expression of contempt on the part of the bigger landowners in the neighborhood. So is Schickelgruber, the owner, the man of the checkered pit, i.e. a low-lying patch of land, the with sandy patches and dark scrub.
3: And in the notes of Man and the Wolf, there are several mentions of Hitler and Nazis. In one footnote, Eisler hypothesizes that Hitler's first name, Adolf, is probably composed with the baby word Ada for father and wolf and means father wolf. He mentions Hitler again alongside the biblical legend of another great enemy of the Jews, the Neo-Babylonian emperor King Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem for the first time and exiled the Hebrews from Judah in the Babylonian captivity. Eiser is comparing the rumors that Hitler would fly into rages and chew on carpet with the story of Nebuchadnezzar eating grass on his hands and knees in the book of Daniel. He concludes that if the stories about Hitler's rages are true, they were probably manic, lycanthropic states, while Nebuchadnezzar's grass-eating was an act of repentance by a depressed man. Elsewhere, he talks about the marriage by capture of Hitler youths and their female counterparts in the Bund Deutscher Mädchen. And, of course, there was his description of the SS's atrocities in Prague that we heard a part of in the first episode.
7: When the German occupation authorities closed down the Czech University of Prague, a considerable number of students, girls and boys, went in an orderly procession to the entrance doors, rhythmically shouting their demands that the doors be reopened so that they could continue their studies. After this had been going on for some minutes, A flying squad of SS men drove up in lorries surrounding the students and drove them through the doors which had suddenly been opened from the inside by other SS guards. The students were herded into the largest lecture hall with blows and kicks. Then they were told to strip completely. When the order had thus been carried out, the doors were opened and the prisoners were told they could go, indeed run out, girls first. In rows on both sides of the door stood SS men who had taken off their own leather belts, weighted with the regulation metal buckles. The stripped victims had to run the gauntlet between them while they were savagely beaten up with these belts and pursued with relentless blows through the long, empty, resounding passages of the house into the arms of other SS men posted at the end of the run to stop the girls.
3: This seems like an appropriate time to tell yet another very strange and tragic story that indirectly concerns Eisler. It's the story of Friedrich Morawski, a priest who rose through the ranks of the Nazi movement, beginning with the SA, or Stormabteilung, commonly known as the Brown Shirts, in 1933, and then joining the SS and landing a position at the Reich Security Main Office, where he worked on what was called Opposition Research. Morawski also belonged to Heinrich Himmler's hexen Auftrag, or special witch unit, this bears explaining. 20th-century German neo-pagans who supported Hitler tended to equate Jews and Christians as part of the debased religions of the inferior races. While Teutonic religion was a natural worldview of the German, the special witch unit undertook the first systematic study of German witch trial documents from the 16th and 17th centuries with the goal of demonstrating that the European witch hunts were an anti-Aryan extermination campaign undertaken by the church. In fact, the number of 10 million victims that you still sometimes hear from neo-pagans and others sympathetic to the accused witches in the witch trials was first popularized by Nazi propagandists, a fact that these well-meaning neo-pagans and feminists would no doubt be horrified to learn. The real number of men and women executed for witchcraft in the early modern period was probably around 50,000, which is quite horrible enough. In 1941, Mirowski, because he was a prolific scholar with expertise in religion and archival research, was put in charge of a special unit devoted to building a Yuden Bibliothek, consisting of volumes confiscated, meaning stolen, from synagogues, bookstores, and the private libraries of Jews. The work of cataloging and shelving the books was performed by 25 conscripted Jewish scholars who worked while their SS overseers insulted and harassed them. When the work setting up the library was complete in 1943, the captive librarians were sent to Auschwitz, where all but two of them died. I have no reason to believe that Eisler ever knew who Friedrich Morawski was. But if he had... I feel quite sure that this man who stole books and tortured and murdered librarians would have earned a special kind of hate from him. Morowski had started out as a priest, but somewhere along the way he developed some pretty extreme theological ideas. And they actually weren't too far off from the heresies of Marcion, which you may remember Eisler thought constituted a part of the Gospel of John. Morawski argued that careful reading of the text would demonstrate that early Christians did not believe in the Old Testament and thought of it as Jewish fairy tales. The upshot of this is that Christianity is in no way indebted to Judaism. Understandably, this was a bridge too far for many German Christians who supported Hitler but did not want to destroy the foundations of their religion. Morawski's downfall came at the hands of a clergyman named Walter Grundmann. Grundmann was one of the founders of the Institute for the Study and Elimination of Jewish Influence on German Church Life, a lickspittel group of anti-Semitic theologians who demanded that their members take an oath of allegiance to Hitler and declared him God's agent in our day. But their admiration for the Reich was evidently not reciprocal, and the Nazis seemed to be mostly unimpressed by their strident posturing. It even forced them to take the word Bewegung, or movement, out of their original name, because that term was reserved for recognized Nazi organizations. Despite the sometimes open hostility the Nazi leadership displayed towards his goals, Grunewald was persistent and kept asking the propaganda ministry to be allowed to publish a journal of scholarship confirming the racial, folkish epistemology of national socialist worldviews. They finally told him that there was no interest in synthesizing Christian teachings with National Socialism or in proving that a reshaped Christianity is not fundamentally Jewish. Grundmann suspected that elements within the party were pushing the anti-Christian views that were causing the Reich to keep the Institute at a distance. His suspicions were confirmed when he discovered a pamphlet titled Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, written by Friedrich Murrowski and published in 1940 by the anti-Semitic publisher Theodore Fritsch. Reading the pamphlet, Grunman recognized parts of the argument as having been lifted from Eisler's German book on Jesus and reported to Murrowski's commanding officer that he had plagiarized a Jew. As a result, Morawski was expelled from the SS in 1943. He eventually committed suicide two years later along with thousands of other Nazis the same year Eisler's article Man and a Wolf appeared in the Hibbert Review. That's it for this week. Next week, we will conclude Robert Eisler's story with a look at his last decade spent living in England. We will see Eisler get in arguments with the BBC, refuse to become a British citizen, lose the confidence of most of his former friends, and produce what I think are his most important works. I'd like to thank my guest, Stephen Beller. For this week's episode, the voice of Robert Eisler was provided by Caleb Crawford and Logan Crumb. With additional voices by Brian Evans and Kiara Ridpath. Throughout the podcast, I've received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wacheleski and Logan Marshall. The music is Shibboleth Beseda, recorded by Ayakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program. Special thanks also go to the Warburg Institute at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London and the Griffith Institute at the University of Oxford. <speaking>
4: We're in